This edition of the Middle East Update is taken from a meeting held on behalf of Prayer for Israel by Lance Lambert at Holford House, Richmond, on Friday the 8th of December, 2006. Chapter 22 and verse, from verse 16... And the Lord said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And then in the new covenant, in for many of you a very well known chapter, Romans, the Roman letter of the Apostle Paul, chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the full number of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Uh, these verses, I believe, lie at the root of our present situation. Israel is a mystery, not least to the church. It is understandable that it is a mystery to the unsaved. It is not quite so understandable that it is a mystery to those who are saved. Yet unless God touches our spirit, our heart, and the eye opens the eyes of our heart, we cannot understand this mystery. How can God be faithful to a disobedient, Messiah-rejecting people? How can he keep a covenant that he made with them thousands of years ago and keep it to the letter? It is not a conditional covenant he made with Abraham. It is unconditional. And those amazing words, and I will be a God to thee, and thy seed after thee, God has kept all through the years. It is a mystery. And I think that the more we try to use our brain box to understand it, the more mystified we become. You all well know that this matter is a hot potato amongst evangelicals, let alone nominal Christians. You know as well as I do that there are people who get all hot under the collar the moment you begin to speak about a divine destiny for the Jewish people. Yet our present world situation cannot be understood if we do not understand the status 
of Israel in the sight of God. Interestingly, what lies at the root of our present situation are these words that God spoke to Abraham. When he said to him that he would bless him and he would, um, uh, he would uh, in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He said, those that bless you and your seed uh, uh, will be blessed, and those that curse you will be cursed. Abraham is called, in the word of God, the father of all who believe. That means every Gentile who has come to faith, every Gentile who has been born of the Spirit of God, their father is Abraham. I find it interesting that the Lord spoke of two sets of, he illustrated what he said to, to Abraham by speaking about the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. As if there are two sets of people that Abraham is the father of. An earthly people, and the heavenly people. When a nation curses the church, I'm talking about the real church, the body of our Lord Jesus, a curse comes on that nation. When a nation curses the physical seed of Abraham, a curse comes upon that nation. When a nation blesses the true church of God, the body of our Lord Jesus, a blessing comes upon them. And when a nation curses the church, a curse comes upon them. It's like a boomerang. It bounces back. Blessing. Now, if you don't see that in this Genesis 12, you think it's only Abraham that the Lord said, those that bless you, I will bless, and those that curse you, I will curse. You need to turn, turn to Numbers 23, chapter 23, verse 9, and there you will discover that it is the nation. It's the nation that is spoken about in that extraordinary verse. Uh, that those that bless you, the Lord will bless. And those that curse you, the Lord will curse. Even more interesting in my estimation is the simple fact that <clears throat> a land is also here. It's not just a nation. It's not just those that are saved by the grace of God and those who are the physical seed of, uh, of Abraham. But it speaks of a land. That's why I read the next chapter, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of this land, for unto you and to your seed will I give it forever. That's why I read chapter 17 and the verses from verse 6, where the Lord speaks of an everlasting covenant. Now, there's a, every time one mentions this, some clever person 
comes up and tells us afterwards that um, the Hebrew word olam, translated everlasting or eternal, uh, does not mean everlasting and eternal. It means time-lasting. I, I don't understand why the Lord would use a word uh, of in, this, in this sense. If it's temporal, why not say it's temporal? If it's only lasting for a certain period of time, why doesn't the Lord say so? He says it again and again and again, everlasting, everlasting, everlasting. And ulam is used, it is true, sometimes meaning only something that lasts for a certain period. But generally speaking, it is the word for something eternal, something forever. But you cannot get away from this one throughout their generations. Forget the everlasting and argue theologically all about it. But it says, throughout their generations, I will be their God. That means whether disobedient or obedient, he will still be their God. And that means that you have a nation on the face of the earth, just as you have a true church. That is the key to history. After all, history is not just something to do with Britain <laughs> or with the United States or with the European Union or with Russia or with the new powers that are rising in the East, China and India. Really, it is amazing, this book, the Bible. It traces the purpose of God through a particular people, both an earthly people and a heavenly people. And basically, if I put it in my own words, it says this, the whole of history is explained by the blood-washed redeemed who are the church and by a nation that is unbelieving at present. I say at present because this mystery of Israel is so incredible that the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, says that the hardening in part has befallen them until the full number, this isn't the, full, the fullness of times, this is the full number of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now, I say that this question of the land, the promised land, lies at the root of our present situation, world situation. I want to talk about the world, the general situation in the world, and then I want to talk about the situation in the Middle East, and finally, I want to talk about the situation in Israel. All of you know the term promised land. It was a land promised to Abraham, although he never possessed it. And to his seed who did possess it. And it was to be 
forever. An everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham. I believe that the division of the promised land will bring the European Union, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Russia, and anybody else who is involved into judgment. I know this sounds incredibly old-fashioned. People will say, don't be so stupid. The promised land was something that belonged to the past. When Jesus came, he ended it all. It has nothing to do with the promised land. Then why does Jesus come back to Jerusalem? Isn't that a good question? Some of you who've known us for years will know I've asked it many, many times in different meetings. How come that the Lord Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem? How come he will come in exactly the same way that he went? How come his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives? It's actually, we're told, it lies east of Jerusalem, the old city. I mean, it's, it has to be a, geogra a geographical factor in it. Why does he come back to Jerusalem? The capital of an accident. It, it, there has to be a divine meaning and significance in, in, in this. This promised land is now under threat. It is to be divided. Now, I must tell you straight away that it's not just the nations, the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, Russia, that are involved in the division of this promised land. It is also our own leaders. Arik Sharon, Ehud Olmert, therein for the division of this land. Uh, it, uh, it is uh, uh, interesting who promised this land? God. To whom did he promise it? To the physical seed of Abraham. And in one sense, to the church. Because the kingdom is going to be set up from Jerusalem. I will come to that in a moment, if the Lord helps me. Um, uh, uh, but... Um, uh, now, this is how I see it. If politicians, statesmen, world leaders decide that they know better than God and that they are going to divide that promised land and give it to other parties, part of it to other parties, they're on a collision course with God. I don't I, I don't mince my words, I hope, in this. Uh, so important is this matter of the promised land that God will overturn superpowers and powers and ideologies that come into conflict with the divine purpose.
Those of you who take the, the updates that I make periodically will know that I have said repeatedly about George Bush, President of the United States, whom I think is a dear, dear believer. Born of God, saved out of drug problem and alcohol problem years ago through the ministry of Billy Graham. He has been courageous in standing up against gay marriage, against abortion, against euthanasia. He's been ridiculed in the American press, Canadian press, let alone the world press, for so doing. But there is one thing he apparently has not understood from his reading of the word, that the promised land is the promised land. It is a divinely promised land to a particular people. In so doing, he has brought himself in onto a collision course with God. And he has brought that great nation that he leads into the same collision course with God. Now, I'm, I'm, I um, don't want to spend time, too much time on, on, on Tony Blair. Um, I admire him that he has um, stood so loyally with Bush in this whole problem in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it is Tony Blair that has been the biggest influence on President Bush to divide the promised land and he's just about now to go to the Middle East to try and work it even more. Uh, this simply means that the United Kingdom is on a collision course as well. It may at present all seem very uh, prosperous and economically in good health but it is on the collision course in the same way that when Winston Churchill divided the land in 1922, it took a whole 20 years before the judgment of God fell upon the British Empire. But it fell. I believe that the midterm United States Congress election, which has resulted in the democratic takeover of the Congress, both houses, is the first stage in the United States losing its superpower status. Now there is an anti-American feeling in the whole of Europe, and not least here in Britain. But I do not think that most believers realize just the cold wind that will blow when the United States loses its superpower status. For instance, just as an example, the protection of Christian minorities 
in Indonesia, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in China, all over the world has been largely due to the presence of the United States as a superpower. Britain never stands up for them. The European Union certainly doesn't stand up for them. Nor does Russia, obviously. But the very presence of the United States as the superpower in the world has preserved, in spite of persecution and tribulation, those minorities. When it's gone, the work of the Lord Gospel work will feel a blast of cold air. But much more than that, I think, there you must understand that this world is basically a spiritual world. It is principalities you cannot see, powers you cannot see, world rulers of this darkness you cannot see, hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly place you cannot see. It is a spiritual world, essentially. We tend to think it is a world of flesh and blood. Of course, that's part of it. But behind the real power in history is what is not seen. Daniel saw that when he saw princes of Greece and princes of Persia. Principalities determining the course of history. So as I see it, something tremendous is afoot at this present time. Um, I don't want, and I only say it because I'm amongst good friends, but uh, God gave me a prophetic utterance in 1998, amongst a few others. But in 1998, in the biennial conference get-together, of intercessor leaders, uh, that is of national movements, 42 in all there were um, at that time, uh, in the Philippines, in a place called Laguna, in the Philippines, on the 2nd of November. And this is what the Lord uh, said. My anger is stirred up, says the Lord, against the nations, for they are dividing my land and seeking to destroy my heritage. My furious anger is like a boiling cauldron against those powerful states that have produced such strategies and who by pressure and manipulation are seeking to implement them. Now I will become their enemy, says the Lord, and I will judge them with natural disasters, by physical catastrophes, by fire, by blood, by earthquakes, and by eruptions. I will touch the seas and the atmosphere, the earth and all that is within them. Moreover, I will touch them where it will hurt them the most, for I will touch their power and the foundations of their affluence and prosperity. I will overturn and overturn and overturn that they may know that I am the Lord. They sit like potentates as so safe, so secure, believing in their own cleverness and wisdom and power. But I, the Lord, I will cause them to stumble. I will lead them into confusion. Mark this. 
I will lead them into confusion and disorder. I will blind them and delude them so that they will make mistakes. Because they have not regarded me, nor honored me, but rather they have devalued me, deriding my word and ignoring my covenant. For too long I have been quiet, says the Lord, but now will I arise in overflowing anger and fury, in dividing my land and seeking to demoralize and destroy my people Israel. They have thrown down the gauntlet. I, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty One, I will take them on. Then there's a little more about for those of us who really are intercessors. That was in 1998. An awful lot has happened since then. We've had earthquakes, we've had tsunamis. America has had the worst fires in her history, even whilst we were there, uh, Steve and I, just in the last three weeks. California has experienced the worst fires ever in, her, in its history. Floods, fires. And yet most of God's people are totally unaware. I think that this is of tremendous importance. I think that uh, the, the present condition of the Lord's people in Britain The bright spot in this rather gloomy outlook is the third world, Africa, Southeast Asia, China, South America. It is amazing what the Lord is doing in the third world. It is a New Testament church, seeing the power of God experiencing miracles, learning how to pray with passion. What in the world has happened to the West? To the church in the West? Dancing on the edge of a precipice. Without the slightest glimmer of impending judgment. When I read scriptures, let me just give you a few. I will read them swiftly. In Micah, the prophecy of Micah, chapter four, and uh, and verse um, uh, eleven. And now many nations are assembled against thee, that is Israel, that say, Let us let her be defiled, and let our eyes see our desire upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. For he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make thy horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many peoples, and I will devote their gain unto the Lord. 
and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? What the Lord is saying is this. The key to what the world situation is not the superpowers, not the big powers, nor the present ideologies like Islam that seem to be all powerful. The key is little Israel, six and a half million people buried in the Middle East. And it's, almost, it's always been so. It's always been so. Don't you think it's extraordinary? that the great dynastic empire of China is not even mentioned in the Bible, that the Indian uh, civilization is not mentioned in the Bible, that Babylon is only mentioned because of its connection with this little people. And Persia, and Egypt. <laughs> These are great nations. And Hellenism, in which the whole European Union glories, and which Britain now is throwing away her Judeo-Christian heritage to return to paganism of the Hellenic period. Isn't this amazing? I find it extraordinary. God says, that little nation, these other nations don't understand my thoughts. I will thresh them. And it's this little nation that will be the key. All right, if you've, if you're still got a question about it, let me take you to Jeremiah and chapter 51 and verse 19. Uh, chapter 51, verse 19. Uh, uh, the portion of Jacob is not like thee, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. With thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. With thee will I break in pieces the horse and the rider. With thee will I... Well, I won't go on. It's, it goes to everything. Social life, economic life, political life. The Lord breaks everything. And, and Israel is his battle axe. But when the Lord said that Israel was the weakest, in the weakest position she had ever been, she was devastated, desolate, and exiled. And God said, you are my battle axe. I find that amazing. So it's not as if Israel was one, some great superpower that you fully understand the Lord saying, you're my battle axe. You're my weapons of war. With you, I'm going to break up everything. It was at the most extraordinary time. All right, here's another scripture coming up. This time in Isaiah, and chapter 60, and verse 12. For that nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Or again, let me give you yet one more. Uh, Jeremiah 30, and uh, verse 11. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. For I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have scattered thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will in no wise leave thee unpunished. I think that's enough to understand that everything to do with this little nation, so easily to be divided, to be devalued, and to be uh, uh, ridicule is in actual fact the key 
to world history. Of course, I would say this, uh, uh, that the churches also. I'm talking the real church. I'm not talking about the institutional thing. I'm talking about that with those who are the body of our Lord Jesus, members, living members of that body. They're the key. It is Abraham. Okay, well, now that's enough for talking about the world situation. Uh, let me say something about the Middle East situation. In the May update that some of you probably take, you will remember one little phrase, maybe, uh, <laughs> in which I said that the uh, situation in the Middle East has taken a significantly serious turn for the worse. And I mentioned two things. I mentioned the election of Hamas, uh, the militant Islamic group amongst the Palestinians, by a landslide victory of 77%. And I mentioned Israel's election that brought Almut to power and Kadima with their idea that they were going to um, uh, give back a large portion of the so-called West Bank. I mentioned then that we had a defense minister who didn't know much about defense. And a prime minister who was untried. I put it as kindly as I can. Well, what we said turned out to be more than justified. The Lebanon War. It began with Hamas. They captured a corporal. When Israel went in to try and save him, Hezbollah came over the border and ambushed a group of soldiers, killed three, took two hostages, whom now Alma tells us are in all probability dead. And so came the Lebanon War. Well, I'm not going to talk about the Lebanon War because I, I covered it in my last update. And I suggest you get it uh, if you want to know a bit more about that. But uh, what I want to say is this. The American election and what is now happening in the Middle East is not just a significantly serious turn to the worst. It is a lurch to the worst. Um, this problem in the Middle East is now compounded. The Lebanon War was a disaster for Israel. It gave to Hezbollah a huge propaganda victory. In spite of the fact that a large portion of Lebanon's infrastructure was destroyed, it gave actually to Hezbollah a huge <laughs> propaganda victory. If I take that propaganda victory Hezbollah now is out to topple the Lebanese government. That has been their aim all along, by the way. They want to set up 
uh, a fundamentalist Islamic state in the Lebanon. There's no way that Hezbollah can negotiate with Israel. Don't listen to all that business about the Sheba bombs, that once they've got that back, they will be at peace and there will be no more problems. It's nonsense. It's just propaganda. They are helping Hamas and will continue to do so because they, their aim is the total destruction of Israel. Folks just don't understand what militant Islam is all about. Because, for instance, in Britain, as in all the European countries, there is now a significant Muslim minority. And all the governments are bending over backwards to protect that minority, understandably. Lest people, hotheads, take it into their heads to start beating up people and all the rest. Today was the first time that Tony Blair or any uh, leader here in Britain has spoken straightly uh, to uh, the Islamic community in Britain and said, if you don't believe in tolerance, go back where you came from. Militant Islam, fundamentalists, cannot accept tolerance. Those of us who live in the Middle East, I lived for three years in Egypt. I saw it with my own eyes. I thought Islam was a beautiful thing, a, a kind of sister religion. Uh, the, I, I thought their mosques were so simple and so beautiful, the design of them, the colors that they used and everything else. I had my wake-up call when I stayed with two old Irish missionaries in the high street of Suez. And um, I was sitting in their drawing room about four floors up on the high street from Suez, and I heard a great commotion. The window, the French windows were open, so out I went on the balcony and I saw a huge tide of men coming down from, from, from side to side of the street, like a great flood. And, and, and as I looked, all yelling and shouting with hands up, and, and then looking in the center at the very front, I saw two young men as if they were being dragged along. And at that point, these two Irish missionaries, very tough ladies, I might say, as only the Irish can be, they came out and seized me and pulled me in and shut the thing and pulled the curtains and said, it's the Muslim Brotherhood. Don't ever stand out when they are having a demonstration because they can easily kill you. I couldn't believe it. I said to them, well, there seem to be two young fellows right in the front of it. We'll find out, they said. And they did. Those two young men were cops. They were challenged in the market as to whether the Quran was absolute truth and Muhammad was the last and greatest of the prophets. They hesitated. A butcher <coughs> seized them and put a hook through their tongues and jaws. And they were being dragged along in the center of that great mob. That was my wake-up call. I suddenly understood Islam may look beautiful, but there is something very dark within it. Now, what is happening in the Middle East is frightening. 
because I think all of you know that Islam is divided into two denominations, two principal denominations. Actually, there are more than two, but there are two principal de denominations. One is Shia and the other is Sunni. The Sunnis are the majority, and the Shia are, uh, until more recently, the, uh, the minority. Now, suddenly, a change, a sea change is taking place in the Middle East. There is an arc of Shia Islam beginning in Afghanistan, going through Pakistan, through the whole of Iran, through Iraq, of which 64, even some say 67% of the nation is Shia, through Syria, which is principally Sunni, but which the leadership uh, Bashir um, um, Assad, <laughs> thank you, uh, uh, is uh, belongs to a minority group within Shia, and and so do most many of the leaders in Syria and the Lebanon. Now, forty percent, forty forty one percent of Lebanon is Shia. It's because they have huge families, average of twelve. Uh, so frightening is this arc that stretches across the whole Middle East that Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia are frightened to death and the Gulf Emirates, the oil shares. Now for the first time, they think something should be done with Israel. You, uh, not to destroy her, but to come to some kind of settlement. They are so afraid of Shia. There has been a long-standing hatred between the Sunnis and the Shia. I don't know whether I'm making sense to you all, but... It's worth saying these things again and again. Hamas can never make peace with Israel or it is finished as a party within the Palestinians. It is built on the Quran and an absolute interpretation of the Quran. It cannot accept any uh, compromise. That's why Abbas has been trying and trying with the help of all the others to bring uh, 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 Hamas to its senses. Even though they've been cut off from all financial support from the Western world, uh, there's no chance of anything happening. Now, I'd better watch myself on time. But um, um, uh, you can see uh, the seriousness of this situation. This is why Tony Blair, it's why Condoleezza Rice has been almost immediately to the, to, uh, to, uh, the Middle East. It's why Tony Blair is now going. It's why Moratinos and the others from the European Union, um, the, the secretary of the European Union, Javier Solana, um, is going. No, no friends of ours. They dislike us intensely, Moratinos and Solana. Tony Blair 
is, uh, believes he's doing the right thing for Israel. Just like Bush believes he's doing the right thing for Israel. But it involves the division of the promised land. Now God does not live in time. He lives in eternity. That's why he is, I am that I am. With God, everything is present. Today, Jesus died. And today, Jesus rose again. And today, Jesus sat at the right hand of God. That's why he says, I come quickly. <laughs> For us, it's quickly. It's thousands of years. But as far as God is concerned, it's right now. Anytime, just the nod. And the Lord will be on his way back to Jerusalem. <laughs> Today God made a covenant with Abraham. And today Bush and Blair come along and say, this is not politically correct. In fact, we wish to say that we think it was a stupid arrangement. It is causing enormous problems in the Middle East. And we have to override you without intelligence. You've got it wrong. We will create two sovereign states within this promised land. And they will live side by side. What a dream. <laughs> side by side in peace. It's a joke. If only it was a joke. Now, all I can say is this. The outlook, humanly speaking, is grim. The States is in a terrible fix. First, they introduced democracy to Iraq and Afghanistan and to Hamas and to the Palestinians. And then, all of a sudden, they got a militant Islamic landslide victory with the Palestinians. Now they wish to undo it. If they only could. They're urging Abbas to cancel the whole thing and start again. But that's not quite democracy. <laughs> if Egypt was to have a genuinely democratic election, the Muslim Brotherhood. By the way, Hamas is only the Palestinian name for the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood would win. Or at least come in with a huge, uh, powerful number that the government of Egypt would not, could not override. Isn't this interesting? But the outlook is not all gloom. One of the most extraordinary things at present is the number of Muslims that are coming to the Lord. It has never before been since the coming of Islam. All through the years, Islam has had this grip upon peoples and nations. I remember when I lived in Egypt, the missionaries that I was with, the Egypt General Mission, for instance, as well as other missions, 
they could count on one hand in a lifetime those who'd come to the Lord. And even some of those didn't stand. I remember dear Auntie Alexander and Auntie Kathleen, those two extraordinary missionaries, who taught me so much about prayer. They could count on their two hands those that led to the Lord. But they always said to me, there will come a day when a huge harvest will come. I find this amazing. It's not quite so prevalent amongst the Arab nations. But in Bangladesh, so many coming to the Lord. Indonesia. I remember the police chief of Indonesia, this is years ago, when he put because he was a Muslim who found the Lord in the um, Timor revival. Uh, uh, he he uh, uh, looked after me in my trip right around the, in the in, and I was so nervous. We had Muslims came to the Lord. And I wasn't preaching the gospel, I was preaching about Israel. I mean, that's what they asked me to do. So I spoke about Israel. And people came to the Lord, left, right, and center. So I said to him, am I not in, am I not in danger? No, he said, not while I'm here. But he said, <laughs> but he said, Listen, when the Dutch left Indonesia, 6% of the nation were registered as Christians. At present, 26% are registered as Christians. But he said the actual figure is 31%. This is the biggest Muslim nation in the world. A friend who was one of our boys who looked our, helped us in the work and is now a missionary in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, the devil cannot give his name because he worked as a businessman with his wife and family, uh, wrote recently and said, a strange and amazing thing has happened. For the first time in ten years, young people have come to us and come to the Lord. Saudi. And they could, have, they could be decapitated if it was discovered. I think some of you know my story about the convocation in Jerusalem that Tom Hess leads. It's a kaleidoscope of nations, all third world. Wonderful color, dance, and everything. Time-wise, it's third world. You don't know when you're speaking, and don't know how you're going to do it, how long, and you don't know who's going to lead, or anything. It's amazing. But I've enjoyed it very much. And on occasion, two years ago, afterwards, he said, I think we should pray for all the leaders here in Jerusalem. And then he said, maybe the board could pray for lunch. So I had people with hands all over me, my head, my head, and one brother lying on the ground with his hands around my ankles, and all praying that I would live till I was 120. So I, I said to them, I wanted to say to them, just wait, I'm not sure I want to live to 120. But uh, they went on and on. And so I said to the brothers, we better get out, but otherwise we're never going to get out of here. This is going to go on until 2 o'clock in the morning. So out we went. And as I went out at the entrance, I was caught by a dear brother who barred the way and said, you cannot go. We have something we have to do. And he said, I'm a Kazakh. And he said, these here are five, six pastors, all, all the same age, in their early 30s. We're all Muslims who found the Lord. Each one of us represents a congregation of a thousand. He said, we're all Muslims who found the Lord. He said, brother, we want to make you a patriarch of 
the Cossacks. And with that, they put a robe on me and an extraordinary hat. I had the photo. It was quite extraordinary. And then they said to me, one of them said, Brother, tens of thousands of Muslims have come to the Quran in Kazakhstan. This is the, the bright spot. Uh, something in the Middle East. I think you know about Jericho. You know the house of bread there. It's called a fellowship. They're all Muslims. They're an old ladies who come to the Lord and will not be moved from it. How many times? Three, seven times they've burnt the place down or tried to. And the dear sister who leads it said, said we are the only church in Jericho that's on fire. <laughs> well, now I must come to my last point. By the way, if you read Psalm 83 when you get home, you all know it. That amazing thing about describing the whole situation in the Middle East. And you will see that there are two things. The Lord's, the, the, the psalmist prays that the Lord will pursue them with his tempest and frighten them with his, with his storm. And, and that they may, they, they may know that you are the Lord. Uh, and then the second thing is, they will perish. I find that very interesting. It's, a, it's all to do with Islamic nations. Read it. It's a, a window onto what is happening. God has a harvest to reap from Islam. And I would not be surprised if the Lord fills these Muslim young men and women with such love for the Jew, such love for, for Israel, that it will break down the wall that exists at present, the hardening in part as a befallen Israel. Could it be that these people who so hate her could be filled with such love uh, that it could be the way the Holy Spirit would use to save Israel? I don't know. I just suggest it. Lastly, what about the situation in Israel? Well, I've already mentioned Alma. Uh, I have to be careful what I say, but Ehud Olmert is a wheeler dealer. If there was an election today, he would be out. It's hard to find anybody who speaks a good word for the poor man. Everyone looks on him as a total failure. However, he's in. And he's looking round for means to catch back his popularity, to get back his popularity. So one of the things he's talking about is to make peace with Abbas. So he'll be very much in line with Tony Blair and Condoleezza Rice and the two-state solution, you see. Uh, because he wants to come up with something that will sort of um, redeem his name. Actually, I mean, Israel basically needs. Uh, this is a terrible thing to say to Christian people. Basically, she needs a war. The war with Lebanon was a disaster. 
And it means that Hezbollah now, because of the Islamic mentality, the militant Islamic mentality, that if once you bleed, they have retreated or gone, you punch them harder and harder and harder. You become more arrogant and more aggressive. This most of the Western nations cannot understand. Because they believe that when a people are beaten, you should help them. But not with Islam. Therefore, if America gets out of Iraq, it will be seen as the biggest defeat that the Western powers have been dealt. And a tremendous surge forward for Islam. That's why I believe that that word of prophetic utterance I've read to you, I feel that the Lord showed me that he, he would lead them into confusion and disorder and cause them to make this mistake. I don't believe the removal of Saddam Hussein was a mistake, but I believe everything else has been. And the result is that uh, you have a mess now in Iraq, a total mess. People up to a hundred a day being murdered. Young men who are just trying to join the police or the army in order to keep an extended family alive, taken out, hands tied behind, shot through the back of the head. Whatever you feel about Muslims, God loves them. And Jesus died for them, everyone. Well, I say our situation is uh, uh, not good. The nation is to a certain extent demoralized and divided. The withdrawal from Gaza was a terrible mistake. We've had thousands of rockets fired from Gaza ever since we went through. We have a Lebanon war. As a, you would expect them to look upon us kindly and no, not at all. And I cannot help but remind you of that scripture that the Lord gave me to a dear brother who is a real intercessor for Israel. Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. I will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so she cannot find her path. Now for me this is encouraging. I don't know about you, but I find it very encouraging. It means that every path that Almut's trying, he's not going to discover it. It's, uh, and it's exactly what's happened. Look at the Lebanon war. Every single attempt they've made thus far has ended in, in total failure. And th have you seen the context in that chapter? It is that wonderful picture where the Lord says, I will allure her, this is Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and will speak to her heart. In other words, salvation. How near are we to salvation? The salvation of Israel. Much nearer than we think. Well, now, I think that's really enough for one evening. The bright, uh, the bright spot in the Israeli situation is the number of Israelis coming to the Lord. 
I, it's not huge numbers, but relatively speaking, it is amazing. I take one assembly I know reasonably well in Jerusalem, where they've got a whole bunch of young drug addicts who've come to the Lord. I'm fired. Another assembly that I go to mostly, where they're all largely Israelis. And, and it's amazing to see what is happening. It's the first mercy God of a torrential downpour yet to come. Well, you see, if it's any encouragement to you in this rather more gloomy outlook that I've painted, there are two or three things take home with you. Here's the first. Zechariah 12 to 14. Why do I say it's so wonderful? You say, oh, it's dreadful. All the nations coming against Jerusalem. Yes, but it means that Israel's still there. You got it? I mean, they may all come against Jerusalem, but it means they're there. And the Lord will save them, it says, in the end. Because the spirit of supplication, of grace, and of the same way God saved you, whether you knew it or not, is what he's going to do with them. They shall look unto me whom they pierced, and shall mourn for him as well and only son. It's wonderful. So Israel is still going to be there right at the end. Only in the very last battle will half of Jerusalem be taken. And then the Messiah will appear. First thing. Uh, here's the second thing. <laughs> Romans 11, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Not the Old Testament. Not that I bother about the Old Testament at all. The early church only had the Old Testament. <laughs> I don't worry. I don't understand all this kind of talk about. Oh, that's the Old Testament. I know what they're talking about. As if the New Testament is somehow sacrosanct and the Old Testament is filled with exaggerations and Jewish sort of uh, uh, dreams. Nonsense. It's either the Word of God or it isn't the Word of God. But here in Romans 11:26 it says, and so all Israel shall be saved. So here it is in the New Testament and in the greatest exposition of the gospel in the Bible, the Roman letter. And here it says, and so all Israel shall be saved. Does it mean every Jew, simply because they are a Jew? No. It means all the elect. Multitudes of Jews. And what does it mean? Or it means everybody in the olive tree. Are you in the olive tree? You're a Gentile, saved by the grace of God. You've been crafted in. And there is yet to come a huge multitude of Jews. And so all Israel shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful? That's the second thing. So it doesn't matter what the devil does, let him do a war dance. Let him do whatever he wants to do. Fill the world with darkness. All Israel will be saved. God is absolutely sovereign. In this you must be a Calvinist. None of this thing about the human will and all the rest of it. 
important as it may be, God is sovereign. Here's the last thing I would say. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I've heard these people say, Oh, poor benighted apostle. The Holy Spirit hadn't come, that's why they were just bound by their Jewish nationalism. And all they could ask the Lord Jesus was, Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't say that. Note carefully what they said. They asked, Will you at this time restore the kingdom? And if you look back in the previous verses, you will see that Jesus spent 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God. So now, Israel must have figured in that. So now they said, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, is not for you to know the times or seasons God has set within his own authority. But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, you've got a job to do. Don't get caught on this matter. Get on with what the Lord wants you to do. Out to the ends of the earth. But there will come a time in God's authority with the times and seasons that are his when the kingdom will be restored to Jerusalem. That's why Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. Well, dear friends, that's enough for one night. I hope it drives you to your knees. Not just to be interested in information, but to turn this into prayer, fuel for prayer. May the Lord bless. This tape is distributed by Prayer for Israel. For bi-monthly prayer bulletins, information on other material and ministry meetings in Britain, please write to PFI PO Box 328 Bromley Kent BR12ZF. When writing, please mention your Middle East Update subscription.